0: what the intention is. Uh, rather, use your uh, electronic devices there to uh, text me any questions you might have about this message, and uh, I'll do my best at the end of the message to to answer them. Pretty fun. Cool. I think it's a great thing about RUF. I'm not afraid of your questions. Um, if I can't answer it now, I'll try and do it some other day, or later tonight, even. So, um, we're moving along in our story pretty quickly, and... Uh, we're pretty much close to the end of it we're running out of time and uh, we're trying to do the whole bible in a semester it's pretty ambitious on my part but i think the uh, super big picture here is becoming clearer uh god created the world good we mess it up instead of scrapping it god makes a promise he's going to send a conqueror to restore it to redeem it and the old testament begins to paint this portrait of who this person will be in very broad strokes son of abraham a blessing to the nations, a son of David, a king, a priest who gives himself, not just gives sacrifice, but gives himself as a sacrifice. We talked about all those things. And then in John chapter 1, Jesus appears. He uh, seems to be the divine son, God and man together. And in Luke 4, a few weeks ago, he comes with this agenda, a kingdom agenda. He is trying to restore things to the way they were. He's about love, justice, mercy, uh, he 's on a mission to uh, to fix things, and then last week we see that part of his mission involves his own suffering. Uh, if you were here last week, my, my old friend current friend, old friend uh, Joseph Bianco talked about uh, the necessity of the cross, that Jesus had this idea of a mission that he had to die now uh, it's, This is a little strange thing for a pastor to admit, but we 're actually not going to talk much about jesus death it 's sort of the center of the Bible. We would say it's sort of the linchpin of history, if we believe this. But we're not going to spend almost any time talking about Jesus' death this semester. I feel like that might get me in trouble. But um, I will say a few things about it. In the book of Luke that we're going to talk about tonight, Jesus talks about it as a divine necessity. He uses this word all the time, must. I must suffer and die. He says it all the time, it seems, because he has this inner compulsion, this sense of call that it's God's will, that he die purposefully to deal with the sins of God's people. Uh, and uh, he succeeds. I mean, uh, he succeeds in that he dies. To the extent that dying is a success, he did it. He died brutally and tragically. And uh, that's what next week, and Easter is largely about, um i want to take that and ask a different question with it uh here we've been tracing a story of a conqueror who's supposed to come to fix everything it seems to be jesus and um he dies and it looks for all the world like he loses it looks for all the world like he loses he dies a humiliating death publicly as a criminal the question is this I can ask probably five or ten, five or ten questions. But uh, just simply this why has Christianity not only persevered despite Jesus' death, but grown exponentially? There were like a dozen or two dozen followers of Jesus at his death. That's it. He claimed to be God's son and he died. And now there's two billion. Why? Why? How is it possible that the leader of the movement who had these tremendous claims died and the thing takes off? Well, we're going to try to answer that some tonight. And uh, Luke was a very gifted guy. He was an overachiever. He was a doctor and a historian and a writer. He gave us two books. We're going to read parts of both of them. So I'm going to start in Luke 24 and we'll end up in Acts 28 and we'll do some stuff in between. But it'll make sense because you guys are pretty smart. Luke 24, you can follow along up there. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Am I reading the white place? They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now skipping along to verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, it's I myself. Touch me and see, A spirit does not have, fle- for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish. He ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, the name to all, in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So uh, Luke finishes up this book and begins another one in uh, the book of Acts. This is sort of part two of Luke's history. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know. Times or seasoned, the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And lastly, the very end of Acts, chapter 28, the last three verses. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Alright, a lot of words. Uh, I'm going to ask for God's help. Feel free to join me if you like. Father, we thank you for this word and we thank you for this evening and we pray that you would be kind uh, to make clear the meaning of it and the significance of it. We pray that you would do this for your glory, Lord Jesus, and for our good. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I. Uh, I am not a train aficionado, but my son is and uh, I grew up around a lot of trains and I've heard about this one particular train over and over uh, and I was trying to find out the details of it today anyway um, there's a somewhat famous train steam locomotive in uh, the uh, Henry Ford Museum outside of Detroit it's uh, after a bit of research today I believe it's called the Allegheny or however you would pronounce it and um, it's uh, pretty famous for its size and and what it was doing. It was it was built to haul coal from West Virginia over those so-called mountains uh, to Clifton Forge, Virginia, which I'm very familiar with, and uh, it's a really really mountainous terrain. Uh, this engine, just the engine, the locomotive, was 125 feet long, 11 and feet wide, 16 and feet tall. It weighed 771 thousand pounds. It was built to pull 160 coal cars, each carrying a 60 ton load. Um, And on the plaque beside this engine in this museum detailing all these statistics, the last line reads that 96% of the power generated by the massive engine was used to move the locomotive, and 4% was used to move the cars. Sort of a head-scratcher. I'm not an engineer. Maybe they're wrong. That's remarkable. I mean, I know once things get going, it'd be a little easier, but that's crazy. Well, um, it often seems like the church, this uh, collective institution of God people, is like this. A large, clunky, massive, archaic thing. Somewhat like a relic. And like a museum relic, I might look at it. And ask the same kind of questions of it. Can you do anything? Are you doing anything? Are you going anywhere? Are you changing anything? Am I supposed to just sit in you and pretend that things happen? Like I would in a museum? Or can you actually get up and do something? Because a lot of times when we look at the church or what God's doing in the world, we come to those conclusions. I'm not sure this thing works anymore. Is it real? Did it used to be real? It doesn't work anymore? What's the deal? And our text today is confronting us with this claim that God's kingdom, this thing we've been talking about all semester, is advancing. It's powerfully advancing because the king is alive. Because the king has triumphed. So tonight, simple two points. One's long, one's short. Uh, the first one uh, is that the king lives it's a short. That's the long one, actually. <laughs> and uh, the second one, much shorter, is that his kingdom is advancing. So, this uh, account in Luke presents us with this startling thing that Jesus is alive. After a very public, brutal death, he's alive. Now, this is contrary to expectations our own expectations about the way life works and the human body works and the way life and death works but I need you to see that it's also very contrary to the expectations of his own followers. In verse 1 chapter 24, they go out at dawn taking spices. Why? Because they're going to do something with the dead body. They don't expect him to be alive. You see, they expect him to be dead because in the ancient world dead people stayed dead. That's the way it worked. Uh, He died a very brutal, public death. He was executed by Roman soldiers who were very good at their job. And uh, he was buried on Friday. On Saturday, they observed the Sabbath. On Sunday, they come to observe his death, and they find an empty tomb. Verses 2 and 3 tell us they find the tomb. They don't find the body. And uh, this is not what they're expecting. That's really important. They are not expecting to find an empty tomb. Jesus told them over and over. I'm going to die, I have to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And they didn't get it. They didn't get either part of it. They never got it <laughs> until much later. They continued to not get it. So we didn't read this part, but after this happens in verse 3, uh, they're, they're told, Jesus is risen from the dead, he's going ahead of you. Now go tell your friends. So they go tell their friends. And verse 11 tells us the friends' reaction. It's pretty funny. Uh, These words seem to them like an idle tale. They didn't believe them. Well, I get that. Jesus is alive. He died and he's alive again. Uh, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> You're an idiot. You're a jerk. Get out of my face. Like, that's how we would probably respond in idle tale. Like, what kind of cruel joke is this? So, uh, in verse 36, later, we did read this. They're talking about these things an empty tomb. Where is Jesus? Claims that he's alive again. When Jesus himself comes, in verse 36, and stands among them, and to prove they're not expecting him, oh, we heard you're here. You told us you were coming back. We're waiting for this. They respond like anyone would in their right mind who knows dead people don't rise, they're scared out of their minds. They're frightened. They're startled. They have doubts. This is the way you would expect someone to respond if someone rose from the dead. They're afraid and they're doubting. They don't expect this at all. And uh, and then Jesus, in response, offers an examination. Them to examine him. I, I, I get it, guys. You're not used to this. Uh, it's never really happened before. So, look. Look. touch, See. Look, I can eat things. You got any fish? That looks good. I'll eat your fish. He's offering them a public examination of his corporeal reality. I'm not a ghost. I've risen from the dead. I am back in this body. I'm alive. Taste and see. Don't taste. That's another verse. Touch and see. Um, yeah, no tasting. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the uh, examination goes on, and uh, they're still not believing. They still don't get it. It's, just, it's beyond them. And uh, this story is only slightly related, but it sort of gets to the point of the, of the utter disbelief of this. Um, I have a good friend who now lives in another country, and we, we grew up together in this small town. And while we were like ninth-grade nerds, our table was... Uh, when you're in ninth grade, it doesn't matter how athletic or cool you are, you're still a nerd compared to the twelfth-grade athletes. So twelfth-grade athletes were behind us, and uh, my ninth grade nerd friend wasn't humble or smart enough not to, like, pick a fight with the seniors. Like, you know, you're just like a little adolescent, and he's a big adolescent. He just didn't get that. So they had a very antagonistic relationship. It, I don't think it ever escalated to a fight, but it escalated to some very, very uh, uncomfortable and potentially life-threatening standoffs. Um, so uh, we all, in our separate ways... And then my friend J.J. and I move all the way to Denver, Colorado. And uh, one day, uh, I'm at, at this house where we work, and J.J. comes back and says, you'll never guess who I ran into. And I'm like, I have no idea. We don't know anybody here. <laughs> like, uh, anything was, nothing would surprise me. I don't know anyone here. He's like, Chris. I'm like, Chris who's like, Chris, this guy. I'm like, Chris, the guy that wanted to drive you into the ground? He's like, yeah. He's like, what happened? He's like, I was coming out of this building, and I saw a post office guy. Walked by and I was like, Chris. And I was like, What happened? And Chris turned around and said, Nah, man, nah. <laughs> <laughs> it just walked away. <laughs> you sort of get the sense? Like, I could almost imagine the disciples being like, No, it's not supposed to be like this. Like, it, this, this just can't be. Like, that kind of persistent disbelief, you know? I think it needs to do away with this perception that we often have, though, that first century fisher people like the disciples were just gullible, naive, poops who would believe anything. Uh People wrestle with it all the time there. No, they don't. They never did. That's why they can't believe this. And so Jesus is presenting evidence. He's presenting evidence for them throughout this chapter. And even into Acts, he uh, gives them verbal evidence in verses 41, 45, 44. Hey, these are my words. I I told you guys all about this. This whole book, this Bible, is about me. And we talked about this. Remember the story? I told you this was going to happen. I told you I was going to die. Yeah. Okay, that's the verbal evidence. And he gives them physical evidence. Look, I I can eat, you can touch me. Um, And slowly, Acts tells us, over time, they believed. He offered them many proofs and they came to believe. These highly suspicious doubters in the face of resurrection evidence came to believe. And they're one of many, many others. There's a a long history of people that were very skeptical of the resurrection that have come to believe in the face of uh, overwhelming evidence. I'll just name a few, uh, somewhat uh, fairly well-known folks. You probably haven't heard of them, though. One is Simon Greenleaf. He was the Royal Professor of Law and a founding uh, principal, a principal founder of the Harvard Law School. He was challenged by a student to uh, disprove the resurrection. And uh, he applied the evidential principles of the day to do so as a lawyer and uh, came out a convinced Christian. You can still read his treatise today on the subject. Frank Morrison, somewhat more recently, was a lawyer, is a lawyer, a journalist, and a novelist. He also sought to write a book disproving uh, Christianity based on the foolishness of the resurrection. After wrestling with the evidence for years, he did write a book. He wrote a book called, Who Moved the Stone? he became a Christian. Uh, in some ways, the, perhaps the best way to sum up the, the issue of the empty tomb and what happened to the body and, the, and the, the, re, the real physical resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation has been explained by a German theologian named Wolfhart Pannenberg. Um, being a conservative... Bible-believing Christian in Germany in the 20th century was well-nigh impossible. And uh, Pannenberg, it pretty much killed you for much of that time if you did that. Um, Pannenberg was one. And he simply posited this, that the resurrection was not disproved in the first century when the evidence was the freshest and most accessible and when the people with the most incentive to disprove it. If they couldn't do it and didn't do it then, it's not very likely that we're going to do it now. I think it's a pretty good argument. They had the best access to the information, to the site, to the witnesses, to the people. And they had the most incentive to do so. They couldn't do it. They didn't do it. That's a pretty good argument. I want to say this on the other side, though. I'm taking this dead serious. This is going to shock some of you, and some are going to be like, oh, of course. Um, if tomorrow it's proven, factually, that the resurrection never happened you should all pack up your Bibles and go home and do something else. Like, dead serious, if it's proven the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, and we've been believing a 2,000-year-old farce, you should renounce your faith and go do something else. This is what Paul said. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins, and it's a farce, we're wasting our time. So, it's either really happened and it's really important, or... It didn't, and it's a lie. All of which I want to say, you really should wrestle with this. You really should wrestle with this. Uh, Jesus here, if he rose from the dead, and I think he did, he's the exalted king. His crucifixion was not just a tragic death. He triumphed over death. It means his death did what it said it was going to do. He was going to forgive sins in his death. If he came out the other side, he succeeded. If he said the story was all about him and he rose from the dead, then you know what? The story was probably all about him. He is God's plan. He is the man. He is the linchpin of history. But, um, I I think we really should take this seriously, and uh, you know, sometimes you hear these phrases, like Jesus is Lord, and it seems like a silly cliche, and some people say in a way that is a silly cliche, but really, that's the claim, that Jesus is the one true king. So, two things, two challenges, then we'll move on. Um, if you're here and you're not sure what Christianity is, or you're sure you don't believe it, I would say this claim, based on the textual historical evidence, deserves your honest intellectual pursuit. It really does. This claim that Jesus was a man that lived, who died, his tomb is empty, they've never found the body, and his believers believe he's risen from the dead. That, that requires some serious consideration on your part. Now, for the Christian, those who are here that believe in Jesus, um, the, the, the challenge is a little different. You believe Jesus is Lord, but do you live like it? I mean, you'll even say it, like, Jesus is the King, Jesus is my Lord. Do you live like he's actually your Lord? like, Or that he's absent from the throne and not watching? You know what I mean? Like, well, I can get away with this and that because it doesn't seem to really be here or to care. Conversely, if he's the king, don't we often walk around like we're part of some great pathetic loser movement? Ashamed? I'm ashamed to admit I'm a Christian in class because I think I'm stupid. I'm ashamed to be a Christian because people are very progressive and I've got all these issues. I don't know what to think about them, so I'm just going to be quiet. Are we ashamed? Sometimes we should be ashamed of our history or ourselves and things we do, but are we ashamed that Jesus is Lord? Do we really act like he's the king, like he's alive? Well, the text gives us reason to believe that Jesus is alive and that he's still at work. This took a lot longer than I thought. I'm going to do this last point really quick. Three minutes or less. Strap in. Uh, Jesus talks about the kingdom nonstop before he dies. He comes back. First thing out of his mouth almost is, well, you remember how we were talking about the kingdom before I died? Let's get back to work. Uh, he really does. He tells his men, I'm alive and uh, that's the good news. Now it's your job to go tell everyone. And uh, the gospel, the kingdom, God's work of restoration will grow by this good news being shared. That's the plan. By the good news, verse 47, being shared this good news of repentance and forgiveness being shared with others, um, they're supposed to go out and tell people that Jesus died in order that people might live different lives freely in God's love. And uh, one old pastor highlighted the difference between uh, how kings would often share news of victory in a war. This is important. Check it out. So a king would go into battle against an invading army. To defend his land. And if he defeated the army, he would send back messengers to the capital. Celebrate. We've won. Enjoy. Live long. Prosper. Uh, but if, any, if the enemy broke through the lines, he would send back messengers saying, put archers on the walls, uh, raise the drawbridge, make provision, fight for your life. The enemy's coming. Fight for your life. This pastor says, every other religion sends advisors to the people. Every other religion says, if you want to achieve salvation, if you want to live, you've got to fight for your life. And here's the principles to do so. Here are the rites, here are the rituals, here's the transformational consciousness, consciousness here are the laws and regulations. Christianity does something different. The gospel is an announcement that Jesus has gone and fought the victory for us, and it's done. It's done. And that his peace and joy is yours. And you should go share the good news. It's pretty important. It's a pretty important difference. So these disciples, chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 8 in Acts, they are supposed to go share this message. In chapter 1, verse 6, you, uh, man, you, you, if you look at this, I don't know if it's up there or not, you can sort of feel this. Jesus comes back and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to us? This is the picture. A bunch of really scared people who are afraid of the world, huddled together, and they're basically saying, Jesus, will you now fix everything? And Jesus says, something along the lines, I'll abbreviate, why don't you do your job now? That's what he's saying. I'm going to equip you to go out from this little scared huddle that you're in to the world and share. They're huddled in fear. They're insecure. They uh, don't think they can do anything. And Jesus says, I'm going to equip you by my spirit. I'm going to give you my power. You already have gotten the message. You know I love you and I forgave you. Just go tell everybody. Start here and then go to Samaria. And then go to the next places and go to the end of the earth. That's his plan for how to share the kingdom. For how to grow the kingdom. For how the kingdom advances. And uh, it works powerfully. It works so powerfully. In the book of Acts. So chapter 1 bunch of scared people, a couple dozen of them, sitting around asking Jesus to fix it all. And Jesus says, no, you're going to do it. And it ends, chapter 28, in Rome. By this time it's gone to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the world. And they're in Rome, the capital city, and Paul, someone who hated Christianity, is now a believer. And he holds court every day. And he preaches the gospel. And the book ends with this word. The last word. He's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. You hear that? That's really important. That's how he ends this book. He's telling people about Jesus without hindrance. It's really important. Nothing is stopping it. The power is such that Jesus message is going out into the hardest place of the world, unhindered. And uh, you need, if you don't believe that, I mean, I, I know the world is not perfect. I know Christians die for their faith. I know you can get persecuted. Paul's in jail when this happens. The message goes out unhindered. And uh, at the time when Acts 1 started, there were like 50 believers, maybe a couple thousand at the end of chapter of Acts. Now one point nine 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 five billion. I wanted to be specific. I looked it up. I don't want to exaggerate. Uh... And of the 238 countries polled most recently, Christians in every one of them, um, I'm not making a numerical argument for the legitimacy of Christianity, only that it's grown, just like Jesus said it would. And you can come up with lots of reasons why it's grown, some of them good, some of them bad. But I would simply say, one really good argument is that Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do, that he would work through us when we share the good news of what he's done in our lives. When we share with people listen i 'm I'm not a great person. God loved me and forgave me. I now live a different kind of life i 'm not a completely different kind of person. I still don't make terrible mistakes, but I now love God and I love others. that when you share that, God works powerfully through that in people 's lives and that message has worked for two thousand years in people 's lives all over the world i uh, I drove this road i sixty four i eighty one this area with all these while these giant trains used to go, you know you don't see trains as much anymore. You just don't. I mean, you do. And you, I heard one when I came into the cathedral. Um, they're just not as prevalent. Why not? Or are they just not as big a deal economically as they used to be? A real answer would be Would be nice. Anybody? Yes, specifically eighteen-wheelers. Yeah, semi-trucks now do the work of trains. Uh, about 2 million semi-trucks in the U.S. operating today. Now, it's hard to really give a, a moving illustration involving semi-trucks, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'll give a brief one instead. Um, this is very much what like God has done. There were only a couple of these big trains like the Allegheny, a few dozen. They were too hard and too expensive to build. Um, But there are two million semi-trucks. And this is sort of what God has done. He brought Jesus as as the forefront, the very spear of his kingdom work. And when Jesus did the work that only he could do and finished it, he then gave his work to all of his people. He gave them his spirit, his presence, and his power, and his message. And said, okay, you know I love you, so you should be secure enough to go share it. And uh, you know the basic message, that, that God loved you enough to send His son to die for you. So go share it. And you know what? It's worked. It's worked for 2,000 years. And and it's your call. And it's your privilege. And it's what we get to do. And this is how the king advances. And this is how you can bless your campus. All right. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I thank you for these students. I thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for what you've done. This is, uh, well, like everything we've done this semester, this is a hard text. Uh, We have this hard, stubborn fact or claim stuck in the middle of history, stuck in the middle of our Bibles, that a man rose from the dead, and uh, some of us believe this a little too easily. We've just sort of believed it all our lives without really thinking about it, and uh, some of us haven't thought about it enough. I pray that we would all wrestle with uh, the claim and its possible significance for us. And for those here that uh, do believe, Lord Jesus, that you've done what this text says, that you've gone through death for us and come out the other side bringing life with you that you would help us to live like that that you would help us to live with that kind of confidence that we have a king who reigns who loves us, who beat death for us, who has a purpose for us and that you've given us a little bit of your spirit so we can live for you and talk about you and share you with others. pray that you would do that for your glory, for our good for the good of our campus. We ask these things in your name Jesus. Amen all right um, Q&A feel free to fire me your questions we're going to do elections in a moment but I want to take your questions first so I wait with eager anticipation for the first really stupid question that someone will inevitably send me the only question is who will it be what? <laughs> all right. The question is: What did the resurrection add to Jesus' death that makes it so central? Um. Well, the uh, Jesus all along predicts both his death and his resurrection. And at the heart of this question is really another question, which is, who is qualified to do Jesus' work? Who is qualified to do the work of giving his life for the sins of others? Uh, And the Bible's answer is, no one. No one is qualified to do that kind of, we talked about this when we talked about the priests in Isaiah 52. It would have to be someone who's sinless and flawless. The final perfect sacrifice uh none of us can do that on our own none of us are that um and uh so for the sacrifice to be effective to be efficient it would have to be someone who's perfect well that would pretty much leave only a divine person which is why jesus had to become human he was both human and divine and his resurrection proved legitimate the, the legitimacy of his claims uh I could claim I'm going to die for all your sins and die just very fine. But there's frankly no reason whatsoever for you to believe me. Really. Um, Coming out the other side proves God's acceptance of Jesus' work. Um, Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus' resurrection is explained as an exhibition of God's power. Uh, And basically what we have here is Jesus' resurrection is proof the Father accepted Jesus' work and rose him from the dead. So, those are the reasons why the resurrection is one of the many reasons the resurrection is so important. In the bigger scheme of things, the whole big picture that we talk about this whole semester, uh, God's goal is to unite himself with his people. And that involves defeating death. Not just sin and shame and guilt, but death itself. And Jesus is called the firstborn among the dead. He's showing us what it's going to be like. Uh, The the end of the Bible story is not the incineration of our bodies and the dust uh, and then we become spiritual floating things. Uh, That's Greek Platonic philosophy. It is resurrection. We inhabit a created world. God gave us a creation. We will inhabit something like a creation again at the end. God is not opposed to the creation. He will redeem it and resurrect it. The resurrection is important for all those reasons. All right. Oh, here comes all the questions. Someone asked why is resurrection more important than death or than his death? Um, I wouldn't say it's more important than his death, but uh, logically couldn't have resurrected unless he died. So the death is important. Um, I'm being a smart aleck, sorry. Um, no, I think I sort of answer that with the last one. Uh, again, any, any claim that my di- death might be efficacious, uh, that's not followed up by some kind of proof, uh, there's really no reason I should believe it. And again, the ultimate judge and arbitrator of forgiveness is not me, not Jesus' followers, it's God. God's the one, the, he's the judge, he's the arbitrator of, of holiness and rightness and fairness and mercy. And it's his... Giving Jesus the power to be raised from the dead that proves that the work is done, that it's good. So the death is important and the resurrection is important. It's not necessarily the case that one's more important than the other. Do you think it ever would or could be proven that the resurrection did happen? Well, here we're talking. We could spin ourselves around in an epistemological, philosophical sinkhole for hours. Uh, This is going to bother some and not others. I, I don't think almost anything in our life can be proven with absolute certainty. Most things in life, except for some math, have fun with that. But, but most, almost all knowing, almost all knowing of anything involves some element of critical thought, doubt, and faith. So I believe, I can, I I think I can very reasonably trust and know that this is a historical fact. If you're asking for a tautological finality and certainty, I don't think I get that in anything in life, really. Um, So the ultimate answer to your question is sort of a smart-like answer. The Bible's answer is, yeah, everybody will know when Jesus comes back, but it won't do them any good then. Um, Outside of that, I would say no. And I would also say the human heart is such that um, we are biased against evidence we don't want to believe. So, uh, I mean, Jesus' owned. I'll put it this way, Jesus' own disciples were confronted by a resurrected Jesus, and they're like, no, nah, I don't believe it, man. Like, there's something about us where if we're not going to believe, we're just not going to believe, right? I mean, th- it's this way for some. You can be confronted with the evidence and still sometimes say, no, nah, I just don't want to believe, I can't do it. So I, I would say you should probably not expect this. Last question. Well, I can't answer this one because I am not a Catholic theologian. Um, someone asked, what's the significance of Christ still hanging on the Catholic cross? Um, and I have talked to Catholics about this, but not to anyone whom I would trust their opinion on the matter. I, I'm not saying like they're ignorant. I'm just saying I don't know Really, the ultimate explanation. I feel like I would need to talk to a, a, a priest or, or a father of the church. Uh, Christian crosses or Christian Protestant crosses are vacant. Uh, it's just empty because he's. Uh, we prefer to uh, exhibit the resurrection. I suppose it's also hard to carry an empty tomb around on your neck. I guess. Uh, uh, it's a rock. You got a pebble. It's an empty tomb. Oh. They, um, and so the Catholics I've talked to about this say they, they prefer to focus on the act of atonement on the cross I don't have a problem with that um, but I've not talked to someone whose theological opinion I would, would necessarily trust very much So, alright um, uh, there's one more How do you think this story would have changed of if the Romans beheaded Jesus rather than letting him bleed to death? It's a great question. Um, I mean, this is going to sound rhetorical and a little weird. Um, th- this is often, this is one of those questions you sometimes get like on atheist websites, like, how come never Jesus never healed an amputee? The easy answer is, there were never any amputees because if you got your limb hacked off in the ancient world, you just died. Um, There were no hospitals to fix you before you bled to death. Um, But certainly, being beheaded would have been an efficient way to die. Um, You know, I think as far as I can say on this is this. Um, When Jesus is presented in the book of Revelation, even in Luke and Acts, he is showing them wounds. Like, I am resurrected from the dead, God-man, but what happened to me in history, I still carry with me. See? Holes. See? Holes. See? When I mean, he goes to Thomas, he's like, You can stick your hand there, man. If Jesus uh, resurrected from the dead after being beheaded, I mean, I think he'd have a, like a huge.